Uh, we don't tell you what, we don't tell uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and Boston, Massachusetts what history to teach. Uh, you know, there's no federal history course. Um, and so the school systems have to figure out the curriculum on their own. So we stay away from, um, um, uh, from that. But we do provide support for groups that are generally left behind, uh, low-income in low-income areas and the normal give and take in politics. The United States House Committee on Education and the Workforce plays a key role in guiding education policy in our country. As schools face the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and other future issues, federal policy will be an important factor in determining how we build the future of education. What role does federal policy play in K-12 education? How can the federal government best support all types of K-12 schools? And what is the future of federal education policy in the United States? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Congressman Bobby Scott to find out. Bobby Scott represents the 3rd District of Virginia in the United States House of Representatives. He is the ranking member of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce and was chair from 2019 to January 2023. His career has focused on education policy and he oversaw the largest K-12 spending initiative in American history to help support students and teachers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, he joins us to discuss the role of the federal government in education and the future of federal education policy in the United States. Congressman Scott, welcome to the show. Kevin, thank you. It's good to be with you. Uh, you know, we've known each other a long time. We've talked about education policy. I've testified before you years ago. Uh, but in, in researching uh, you for this show, uh, I did not know that your father was a surgeon, and it was just interesting to to see that you came from a family that valued education early on. I'm sure that had an influence on on where you are now. Well, and add on, my uh, mother was a school teacher. That's right. I saw but, that. So, um, so yeah, education is a great tradition uh, in the family, and um, it it's just kind of assumed that I, I grew up in a family where it wasn't a question of whether you would go to college, but where you went to college. Yeah. Uh, so it's just um, uh, I had a very uh, good background from that perspective. You know, it's interesting, uh, Congressman, that my uh, my father was a pharmacist, grew up in on a farm in, in uh, South Carolina. In fact, um, you know, Jim Clyburn uh, knew a lot of my relatives who went to South Carolina State. My father went to South Carolina State. And okay. uh it was the same kind of reality for me that uh, we knew we were going to college. We just didn't know where. And it does create a different dynamic. Uh, unfortunately, today, a lot of young people aren't even sure about the value of education. It shows how far we've come. Well, it, it, let me just say two things about that. A lot of, um, and Elijah Cummings talked about this frequently, a lot of our students are counseled against college because they're yes. not, quote, yes. college material. And that, in my judgment, is one of the huge values of our historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. Because whatever your counselors tell you, you know that 
in this area, Hampton University and Norfolk State, they're there. And you see people going to college. And I don't care what the guidance counselor says, I will have that opportunity. Now, one of the things you also alluded to is the cost. Um, the 30, 40 years ago, the Pell Grant covered 70, almost 80% of the cost of going to a state college. You could, quote, work your way through through school. Summer job, 15 hours a week during, during, 15 hours a week, uh, during the school year, and come out with no debt. Now you can work 40 hours a week all year and not be able to afford college without a hu- incurring a huge debt, a crushing debt. <clears throat> and some people look at it and just calculate they're not willing to take on $30,000, dollars $50,000 worth of debt in order to get an education. Uh, I think the um, that's the wrong calculation, but the other calculation ought to be what are we doing as policymakers in making sure we get back to the days where the Pell Grant covered a substantial portion of the um, uh, of of the cost of going to college. States are at fault. They used to cover two thirds of the cost of a state college. Now it's on average about one third. And some colleges in Virginia, uh, less than ten percent of their budget is state money. Uh, so we have to get we have to make sure that states are putting up what they need to put up. And we make college affordable so that people can afford to go and don't make the calculation that the transformational value of an education is beyond their reach. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And speaking of uh, the federal role in education, as you said, you were the chair from 2019 to uh, January 2023 of the House uh, Committee on Education and Workforce, and uh, you oversaw the largest K through 12 spending in American history, which uh, I know you're proud of. A lot of it related to, you know, your support for not just HBCUs, but supplementing the college experience in states that had really have fallen short in this area. But let's talk about the federal education policy role. As I talk with school district leaders, and we have a lot of superintendents who watch this show, uh, many of them over the years have started to feel uh, began to feel like the federal relationship was more of a punitive relationship as opposed to an asset. And I think you were one that was trying to change that. Well, well, first of all, the federal role um, started with Brown v. Board of Education when the court said that it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if denied the opportunity of an education. Such an opportunity is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. Okay. Yes. Then you look up and notice that we fund it with the real estate tax, which guarantees that the wealthy areas will have more resources for education and better opportunities than low-income areas. And that's where the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 came in. We funded Title I, which put money into low-income areas. Um under George W. Bush, bipartisan, no child left behind, uh, recognized that money isn't the only thing. Achievement has to be recognized. And if you have equal spending but unequal achievement, well, that's not good either. Yeah. And so um, he had a um, a plan to uh, identify achievement gaps. 
Unfortunately, the way you identified achievement gaps and the lack of any meaningful response to the achievement gaps uh, made uh, No Child Left Behind very unpopular. Uh, but uh, later on, we passed uh, Every Student Succeeds Act just a few years ago, uh, which requires school systems to ascertain whether or not their achievement gaps. They don't tell you how to do it, but you have to have an assessment. And when you find achievement gaps, and you know you're going to find them, you have to have a credible plan to do something about it and to eliminate those achievement gaps. doesn't tell you what you have to do, but it has to be a credible plan to do something about it. You know, it's interesting uh, when you talk about No Child Left Behind and the bipartisan effort there. We all agreed, uh, you know, that we need to identify those achievement gaps. And you're right in terms of every every child succeeds. I mean, you really haven't had a chance to make sure that, that you know, states have put together the credible plan. We don't have the assessments that we used to have. But don't you think that going forward, the balance between the federal role and the state role in education, because most of it is state money, we know that, and and and, and most, as you said, of the state funding uh, plans uh, are either through real estate and, and sometimes that fe- fuels the inequity. There needs to be stronger conversations to ensure now that we're getting our sea legs back, if you will, that those gaps are being addressed. Because in in my humble opinion, what I see around the states, Congressman, is that some states are serious about it and some aren't. Well, the federal role is a unique role. First of all, in terms of achievement gaps, you have to have some sort of assessments. So there's a move to try to eliminate the testing because they are, in fact, an aggravation. And some states have laid on such burdensome tests as to be problematic. Uh, They are not required by the federal government. That's a state problem. But you have to have some assessment to know where the problem is, how much the problem is, and where it is. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to address it, uh, achievement gaps, if you don't know what the gaps are and where they are. So you've got to have um, meaningful assessments, and you've got to eliminate them. You can't, um, once you've identified a gap, you've had some schools that have been uh, unaccredited chronically. Well, if you've got a problematic school, it seems to me that you ought to go in there with better teachers, smaller class sizes, whatever it takes to bring this school up up, up to par um, and not allow any children to be relegated to uh, chronically uh, unaccredited schools. You find some who have the solution to it says, well, what you need to do is to let um, students choose to go to another school. Well, that is a kind of a, 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 a solution for the privileged few, the privileged few that can figure out what the school is and how bad it is, and they can get their kids out. Obviously, all of them can't leave because there's no room in the rest of in the in the better schools. And if you have school choice, any intelligent group of parents will choose the best schools. They can't all go to the best schools. We need to make sure that every effort is made when you find a school that is um, uh, not coming up to uh, to standards to make sure they come up to standards so that all children in the school system get a, a class uh, get a, a class education. 
You know, what's interesting, uh, I know folks in Houston, and I've heard all sides of that discussion because some folks are saying, well, the school district has been, you know, chronically underperforming for years and, you know, the state's taken over. But then other folks are saying that they didn't get the support and resources. You know, we're in a time now where, you know, you have to look beyond sort of the surface headlines to really understand what's going on. And I think, in fact, to try to find solutions. Well, it, it's, it's, it's not an easy solution, and you can't use um, so-called solutions that only help the privileged few. Yeah. Uh, if you have a public school system and say you have a choice to get out of a bad school, well, 90% are going to be left behind in the bad school, and you've solved the problem. You've solved two problems. One, the 10% that got out took care of themselves, but you also solved a political problem because the people that left will probably cause political problems if they still had to go to the school. You'll have parents go to the school board and say, if you don't get the school fixed, I'm going to get you at the next election. Well, if their kids can be taken care of, that takes care of that political problem. The 90% left behind are still getting an inadequate education. You haven't solved anything. And so we have to have solutions that really solve the problem for all of the students. Let me ask you about uh, teachers. Uh, we do have a teacher shortage in this country, um, and many more leaving the profession. One of the things you always hear teachers talking about is, you know, more pay, more support. Uh, but but how do you view the, the teacher uh, crisis in terms of, you know, fewer teachers, if fewer young people are seeing it as a profession, but we need to, as you mentioned your mother, it was a time when, you know, teachers were revered. How can we recapture sort of that way of celebrating the teaching profession and, 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 and really get more and more young people interested in going to the profession uh, like your mother? I think any conversation that's purports to address teacher shortage that doesn't start with salaries, I don't believe is a serious conversation. If you want to deal with this shortage, start off with increasing salaries so people want to go to teaching. They say, well, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a fun um, occupation anymore. Let me tell you, if you increase the salary significantly, uh, a lot of those problems would evaporate because people would, uh, and, and you'd say, Young people don't want to go into teaching. They look at the all of the opportunities they have. And one thing they look at is what the compensation is. Yeah. Um, and if the compensation for teaching is, is low, and you look at the skill set, you've got to have a college education, you have to have organizational skills, you have to be able to, uh, public almost public speaking. You get those kinds of skills and look at what people with those kinds of skills are getting paid in other professions. Um, teaching is kind of low on the scale, so you'll go into other professions and surprise there's a teacher shortage. Yeah. Uh, if you if you started with, uh, with salaries, I think the teacher shortage could take care of itself. Yeah. L let me ask you this. Um, you know, on, on uh, our program, and we, as I mentioned to you, we have uh, listening artists all over the country, and it, it, it's growing. But one of our more popular programs 
uh, has been around uh, the banning of books and the whole, you know, um, fervor around the cultural wars and what you teach and how you teach and history and 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 what history and and selective history, um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that because it's frustrating. My view is that. If you aren't clear about the history that has happened before us and you start to edit and delete, you know, from a political point of view, then clearly, you know, what's that expression? If you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes. So talk a little about the culture wars we see and how that's sort of permeated sort of our educational system. Well, all of that came to light in the so-called Parents' Bill of Rights, which was what we call a message bill. There wasn't any substance to it. It was just an opportunity to get all these things out in the open. It facilitated book banning. It um, uh, promised rights that um, uh, you, are, you already have. There was a provision in there that gave you a federal right to address your school board. Uh, most people would be surprised to th- learned that you needed the federal right. Most thought you just sign up and speak. I had an amendment to that provision that said, but it can be subject to reasonable limitations, like, you know, three minutes. Um, that uh, amendment was deleted. Now, if that bill ever became law, which it won't, what, what would your right be? If you and a hundred of your friends showed up at a school board meeting, do each and every one of you have a federal right of action to speak and have your say however long it takes? I mean, how does the school board get any business uh, done if everybody has an unlimited right to address the school board? If there's an issue coming and you've heard the first 50 people speak on one side, nobody on the other side, do you really have to listen to the next 50 people say the same thing over again, no matter how repetitive? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's in, in, the, um, uh, in the bill. There, there are bathroom bill provisions for how to deal with transgender children, uh, a lot of attack on um, LGBTQ uh, community. Um, most of the rights you already have, conspicuously absent was any... Uh, funding to facilitate parental involvement. There were amendments offered to fund uh, parental coordinators. Most of the school systems, it's not, uh, most of the school systems have problems getting the parents engaged. And parent coordinators have done well in in bringing them into the PTA meetings so that they can become, so they can participate. No funding for that, no funding for counselors, uh, you talked about history and what history is taught. Well, there's one thing about the federal role in education. The present uh, position of the federal of, of the federal Department of Education is that the federal government has no role in the curriculum. We're not going to tell you what to teach. In fact, in we wanted to raise the standards in Every Student Succeeds Act, and we ended up something as convoluted as the standards have to be high enough for a high school diploma. So that if you have a high school diploma, you ought to be able to get into a state college without remediation. Uh, we don't tell you what we don't tell uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and Boston, Massachusetts, what history to teach. Uh, you know, th- there's no federal history course. 
Um, and so the school systems have to figure out the curriculum on their own. So we stay away from um, um, uh, from that. But we do provide support for groups that are generally left behind, uh, low income. In low-income areas and the normal give-and-take in politics, those areas are shortchanged. That's where Title I comes in. English is a second language. A lot of school systems wouldn't do much, so we come in with federal money for those English as a second second language. Uh, Congressman Scott, I have one last question to ask you, uh, and it relates to the future of education. I think many of us feel that the future of education is going to in many ways, be reflected by some of the technological advances. I mean, people talk about artificial intelligence, augmented reality, drone technology. I know in a lot of the schools that we run, you know, we use drones and 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 it's just a whole new world. And of course, you know, social media. But if you look at the future edge, future of education from the point of view of the the federal role. Uh, how can you, in, as a member of the of Congress? best ensure that these new technological advances are evenly distributed and equitably distributed <laughs> uh, and they're done so, uh, dare I say, with some ethical consideration. Because I think the biggest challenge with some of these things is that you know they're, they're not used in the best way for children. And I know a lot of this comes down to the state issue, but there is a power of Washington. There's a power of the bully pulpit. And you've been one to speak out on some of these issues. Well, I've been focusing on what we can do to improve educational opportunities. There is a growing feeling that education has to be able to be monetized. That is, when you get an education, you ought to be able to get a job in that area that uh, your education enabled. And if there's no money at the end of it, there's no, there's less value to the education. Well, I believe that there is inherent value to a four-year on-campus liberal arts education where 90% of the value is not what you learned in the classroom, but just the experience of being in college for the four years. If you look at people in college, most of us have uh, about 95% have four-year degrees, uh, most of which have nothing to do with what we did either in Congress or even before Congress. It's just that there's a transformational effect of a four-year on-campus liberal arts college experience. Okay, that's becoming a luxury I would like to be have that as an option just for people as they're maturing and becoming adults. Um, there are um, people that just want to get a better job, and education has a, a significant role in that. Um, we are considering right now what we call short-term Pell, and that is uh, Pell grants can only be used for college courses or long-term courses that uh, lead to that lead to to certain credentials the short-term courses the six to 12 week 16 less than 16 week programs if all they lead to is a good job can't use a Pell grant well that's ridiculous if yeah. it leads to a good job you ought to be able to use a Pell grant just like somebody going to 
a four-year liberal arts uh, uh, college. Uh, trying to figure out how to actually implement that so that only good programs get funded. And so that's what we're trying to do to open up opportunities for these um, um, for these jobs that require <clears throat> some skills, not all that much skills, skills that the average person could acquire if they just took the course, and they can do well. Mm. And then and we and we also <clears throat> looking at what are called stackable credentials. You see them in nursing, where you start off as a certified nurse assistant, and then an LPN, and then an RN, and then uh, you go into independent practice. You work your way up. Welding, you go up all the way up to a nuclear welder. Stackable credentials uh, so that people can start at the bottom and work their way up. Those are the kind of things that we're looking at. And uh, short term, the short-term Pell Grants uh, can enable that in a way that we've never seen before. And that will open up opportunities for young people that um, uh, they're, they're, the, the opportunities are there. You go to the Workforce Council, and they will fund a lot of this education except that the money runs out in the middle of February. There's one other thing that people in Washington, D.C. know, and that is the value of summer jobs. You can talk to many people of all ages who will tell you that Marion Barry got me my summer job, and that was transformational. We need to make those opportunities available to everybody. Yeah. In fact, the, the, the whole idea of the summer job program is a great gateway to get kids further engaged and go back to school and wanting to do more because they really understand the work work world much better. Uh, Congressman Bobby Scott, look, thank you so much for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.